he goes. And Athens is quite interesting. And what he does in Athens is very interesting. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Paul in Athens. Next slide, please. So here we are in Athens. And I subtitled this one, Culture Shock. <laughs> because I believe Paul had a little bit of culture shock when he walked into Athens. You know, he, he, he saw something, I think, that took him back. But what I like about Paul is he took the culture and as shocking as it is, and he twisted it and turned it into an open door, an opportunity. Because why? Because for Paul, he's not afraid to engage with the truth of culture and society. Because true truth is truth about God and truth about reality. So he wants to find opportunity to tie it, to knit it all together, to bring God into the equation, if you will. So Paul's in Athens. He's waiting for the, the, the team you know, he's waiting for, for Silas and for Timothy, the team who are back in Berea having a good time. But he's waiting for them in Athens. While in Athens, he's greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Full of idols. This is culture shock to him. Idols. He, it, it, the way the word is translated is full of idols is utterly idolatrous. Utterly idolatrous, wholly given to idolatry. It was their culture was saturated with these things called idols. Now, for you and I in a 21st century perspective, we might be a little bit confused by what that means to be full of idolatry. When I use the word idolatry, but when I say our life in the 21st century is very much so like the Athenian life, because our life is filled with idols as well. You might think, huh? Until I explain how idols come. Idols are the things that, like, like God said in Exodus. He says, don't put anything before me. Okay, so let's just make it real simple. If an idol is anything, both material object or anything, an event, an association, a relationship, anything that goes before God, that's an idol. So now think of our culture. How many people do things on a Sunday and, well, throughout the whole week and dedicate their lives to things that aren't God? Now, again, you know, Christians aren't all about like making your life, you know, completely empty and shallow. That we don't want you to empty your life of all your things that make you happy and have fun. But what we, what's important for Christians is that we make God first. God first, Okay. Don't compromise. We know the stories of like of um, what's it, the chariot of fire guy. What's his name? You know, um, Eric. Is it Eric Little? No, no. I'm talking about the Scottish runner guy. <clears throat> and he wouldn't compromise. You know, he he was a runner, and he and and, and and things were a lot different back then. And we might say, well, he's old fashioned in his thinking, but I think the virtue is is, is noteworthy. The virtue that he refused to run on a Sunday. He's refused because in his mind, yeah, again, call him old fashioned, call him 
you know, super conservative. But you know what? In his life, in his mind, he goes, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to put anything before God. And I'm not even going to run. Even though I'm an amazing runner, and I'm sure he got a lot of peer pressure. People say, you should do it, you should do it. You know, and if you've seen the movie, you, you, you can get a lot of that. If the, that story is at all true, the movie, you know, if it represents his life. But the reality is he wouldn't compromise. Because to him, I want to put God first. And if God asked for Sunday, in his mind Sunday was a Sabbath, then I have to give that to him. If God's asking it for me to give it to him, I'm, I, I want to be a disciple of God. I want to be devout to God. And I have to give him that. It is, and to him, I don't think it's a religious, pharmaceutical thing either. I think for him, it just it makes sense. And I think for Christians, a right understanding of God, you know, it makes sense. And we can kind of see when things get in the way. And things can come, I think, nowadays, because we're living in a technological society and a technological generation. I think a lot of our idols come in way of, of technological devices, you know? And so our idols today are crafted by the hands of Steve Jobs and, well, he's not around anymore, but Apple and Macintosh and, you know, PlayStation and Xbox and not just that, but sporting gear, Nike, you know, uh, Puma, you know, there's a lot of things. Well, for some people, their gods are crafted by people like um, Tenet's. And Buckfast and stuff like that. So, so you know what I'm saying? So, so they come, idols come in many, many ways and shapes and forms and sizes, okay? Things that distract us from spending that important first initial time with God. And look at what idols are. Look at the substance of idols. They're, especially in context of what Paul's dealing with in Athens, they're just material things made by people. They're, they're, they're not real gods. They don't have any real power. Isaiah 44, 9 and 20 says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. And when I think of this, even in 21st century context, it's like, okay, I, I, my, I, my eyes do the ultimate role. Every time I hear a teenager talk about getting the new iPhone, the ultimate role. My eye starts here, and it goes all the way over here. And then, of course, teenagers never get it because they think they're amazing because they get iPhones 22. Is that what we're on right now? iPhone 22 or the 23, 7. Okay. So, but you get the point. Who's, who's being duped here? You think Apple really needs to make a new phone every year? You think it's necessary? No, he wants to get in. It's, it's about making money, making profit. Here, it's about profiting. You don't need the new phone. In fact, I'm thinking about going back. Those phones in the 1980s that used to set up with, with antennas. That were, yeah, those things. I want to get one of those. Can you bring them? Man, you got to actually push the numbers in. You have to carry like a, a pocketbook with numbers because you can't go no auto. I'm being sarcastic. But you get the point, though. Do you really? Well, how much different is iPhone 7 than, say, iPhone 3? You know, probably not much. But that's the, that's the point I'm making. You know, do you really need the new thing? So their witnesses see, neither see nor know uh, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified when they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with the hammers and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and it, or, or he drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He, he marks out the pencil 
He shapes it with plans and makes it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with a beauty of a man to dwell in the house. So the interesting thing here is they're making really, as it's suggested here, beautiful things. But they're made by people who get tired, who faint, who are, you know, just people. These gods don't come from greater gods. These gods come from people like you and me who happen to be really good at making things. They might be pretty. They might be beautiful. They might be fun. They might be exciting. They might be like, ooh, all flashy and whatnot. But they're made by people. They're not made by God. Next one, please. Here we, we were looking at um, a group, two groups. There's one group. This is back when men actually looked like men. Look at that beard. I want to look like that. Graham, keep growing your beards. Look at that. Oh, look how, look, how, look how manly that guy was. That's Epicurus. And um, so you have the Epicurean, and you have the Stoic philosophers. And they're going to argue. They're going to reason out with Paul. So I want to introduce you guys to these different groups really quick before we move into it. So you have the Epicureans. And a little something about the Epicureans, these people who are arguing with Paul. They, they were, it was a theory or a philosophy based upon the Greek philosophy of Epicurus, that fellow there. And basically, in a nutshell, they were monists. They were ontological monists or materialists, which means they believe the only things that exist, and we've talked about this before, is material things. Just matter. Matter is all that matters. Very similar, I think, to how people live today. And here we're talking about is we're talking about philosophy, we're talking about worldview. This is how philosophers affect our culture. Because in our culture today, in fact, the funny thing is, uh, my son was playing um, Roblox yesterday, and he was playing with two guys, one person from England and one person from America, like the South America. And the person from South America is like talking about like, you know, well, we're all related. We're all related because of Adam and Eve and he was religious. You know, he was he, he himself a Christian. But then, of course, the guy from England automatically shot up and says, I'm an atheist. And I asked, how old are you? Oh, one was like eight and one was like 10. You're 10 and you're an atheist. Wow, that's, wow. You, you must have started earlier with all your research. Anyways, uh, but, but he's been given a worldview by his culture. And, and the reason why I'm saying this is because people like this influence our culture. And still today, people like this influence our culture. These smarty pantses in university, they affect politics, law, you know, things that affect our lives. And if they don't believe in God, which they certainly didn't, he was a materialist. There's no room for spiritual or non-material things. They didn't believe in souls. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death. When you live, you live. When you die, you die. Does that not sound like a lot of people today? Atheist or deist. He was the guy who came up with the idea of the problem of evil, which we talk about a lot in our apologetics on Wednesday night. The problem of evil. Basically, if God's all good, and if God is all powerful, then why is there evil? Because if he's all good, he wouldn't want evil. He would stop it, because he's all powerful. So this seems like there's a bit of a paradox. And it's not a real problem for Christians. We have answers for it. But he was the guy who came up with it, and he came up with the best form of it. He was um, a hedonist. The Epicurean, the hedonism, which basically says pleasure. Pleasure was the greatest good. Now, come on, guys. Tell me this is not still the ethics of today's culture. The greatest amount of pleasure for all people. Isn't that what utilitarianism basically is? The greatest good or the greatest pleasure for the greatest amount of people. So if you're in the minority, tough. And I hate to say it. If you're Christian, you're in the minority. So tough. People are interested in your pleasure. 
They're interested in the pleasure of the majority of people. So it's not really a fair system, but they're looking at the greatest good. But they are pleasure seekers. And with that, it's assumed that they want to be free from fear and in the absence of pain. Okay, next slide. And this is the reason why I say this affects our culture today. Here's the 18th century Scottish philosopher. I put that in quotes because there's a doubt whether or not he's really a philosopher or just a big mouth. Anyways, uh, so the Scottish philosopher and would-be hipster, David Hume. Yes, that's why I put him in that jumper. Because if he were alive today, he'd probably be a hipster. You know, my, my philosophy um, uh, um, tutor, he, he's, he's, he's Greek. And so, of course, him, it's all about Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. He laughs, he mocks at David Hume. And he's so funny, he's like, it's like when Plato did his philosophy, he did it to educate the people so it would affect our society in positive ways. When David Hume did philosophy, he did it to impress people he's having dinner with. He was having fancy dinners. He's one impress, table talk. And so that's why I call him a hipster. But here's his theories, very similar to what, and the reason why I'm saying this, guys, I'm trying to say that this is the culture that Paul was dealing with, and this is the culture that we're dealing with as well, guys. Again, he was a monist. He was a materialist. He was an atheist, or possibly a deist. I think he's more vocal about being an atheist than a deist, however. Should have erased the deist part. He actually had his own version of the problem of evil. He was a hedonist. He sought pleasure. Pleasure was the greatest goal in life. And of course, freedom from fear and absence of pain. So there's the Epicureans. The next slide, we have a real quick, brief look at the Stoic, who's the other group of people that Paul was dealing with. This was founded, it's a school philosophy founded in Athens by Zeno of Citium, 3rd century BC, so way before Christ. They too were monists, but they were more kind of naturalists. Um, and, they, and, their, and their kind of deity was more or less what's called pantheist, which means they saw God in all things. So, again, they rejected supernaturalism. So the idea of God being supernatural, they didn't like it. They thought that God was in everything natural. You get what I'm saying here? So God was in our chair. God was in you. God was in me. God was in the trees. God was in the clouds. God's in the star. God's in the sky. It was a cosmic God everywhere. He wasn't a separate entity, being of himself that was spiritual, that was outside of nature. He was nature. And the thing is, when we look at the Stoics, there actually, there's a great temptation to mix it with Christianity. But it's disastrous. They were compatibilists, which means they believed in determinism, which is very much what the Calvinists believe in. You know, God ultimately determines all things before our time, and we just kind of slip in like dominoes. But they also believed in human freedom. But as a domino, you have a choice which way you're going to fall, if that makes any sense. They believed in the balanced life, calmness. You know, you've heard of the stoic. You know, they don't feel pain, or they pretend like they don't feel pain at least. They were calm. Virtue for them is sufficient for happiness. So they want to pursue virtue. And the other ones pursued pleasure. They pursue virtue. Harmful emotions are the result of poor judgment. Indifference to pain, they were indifferent to pain. So they tried to ignore pain. They tried to reason pain out. As compared to, say, the Epicureans who actually avoided pain. And like I said, um, they tried to. There was a heretical attempt to combine Stoism with Christianity, which was called Neo-Stoicism. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's, we see glimpses of heresies all over the place still today. But the reality is that is... It, was, it, was, it doesn't make sense to mix that with Christianity. So there's an introduction to some of the people he's arguing with. Let's look at the actual arguments now on the next slide. So again, a group of Epicurean, 
and Stoic philosophers began to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So trying to figure out, okay, maybe he, what's he trying to say? Who is this guy? He's, he's crazy. We're not familiar with what he's talking about. Advocating foreign gods. So, so foreigners from somewhere else, the new philosophy. And, and maybe he seems like a, a, a you know, religious philosopher because he's talking about gods. Because let's see what this guy has to say. So they, um, and they said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. And the key term here is the resurrection. If you remember those last slides, there's, if they're, they're material or naturalists, so, which means they're monists, which means all they believe in is physical things. So there's no place in their theory for the soul or the spirit. And if you don't have a soul and the spirit, you don't have a resurrection. You know what I'm saying? Because once your body's dead, that's that material stuff rotted away. There's nothing to connect that body to an, a resurrected body. You guys get that? It's a little bit crazy, but think about it. You have two bodies. Right? Pre-resurrection, post-resurrection. What connects those two bodies? A soul or a spirit. So the idea of resurrection for these guys was crazy, which is actually not uncommon in the day. If you remember, we talked about the Sadducees way back when, when Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they were liberal. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in supernatural things like angels and spirits and demons. Their God was more or less a deistic God. They wasn't a theistic God. So the idea of resurrection, this... Well, here's the definition real quick here. A raising up, a rising like from an, a seat. Now, of course, I don't think they're going to squabble over sitting up from a seat. What they're squabbling with is a second definition. A rising from the dead. That of Christ. So again, Christ. If Christ's body died and you resurrect into a new body, how, what's the correlation? What's the connection? So they don't understand. They're confused about it. And not just of Christ, but that of all men at the end of the present age. The resurrection of certain ones in history who were restored to life. So in the, in the Hebrews, when there's a list of all the Old Testament prophets and all the, you know, you know, the heroes of faith and all the things they went through, there's a brief little comment where it says, women received back their dead, raised life again. So that is the idea of resurrection. So you have a post and a pre-resurrected body, and they're connected spiritually through the soul of a person. This is radical. This is blowing their minds. So then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the um, Areopagus, which is a large raised rock within the Athenian uh, Acropolis. Uh, the Romans used to call it the Mars Hill. Basically, it was a courthouse. So they wanted to try him, and this is where they would try criminals as well as new doctrines, because they took their doctrines, their theories, philosophies very seriously. So to stand there and start talking and bringing up a new doctrine, you were putting your neck on the line for the most part. You can be tried. In fact, you guys know why Socrates, now, I'm not going to get controversial, but I don't believe Socrates actually ever existed. I thought it was a good story that Pluto, well, played up, sorry, made up. So anyways, but you know why he died? He died because of his philosophy. The, 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 the powers to be didn't like that he was corrupting the young people with his philosophies, so they had him drink poison and die. So if your philosophy, your views could get you killed in this time. So here's Paul. And he probably was a little bit nervous, like, oh, here's my chance. But, you know, am I going to be chased out of town again or finally killed? Who knows? We'll find out. So they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there well, they're there for a very specific reason. They 
They loved the philosophy. They spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So another new idea sounds exciting. I'm sure he had a really good audience for that. And I can imagine he's probably afraid because he's like, okay, here's my chance. How do I reach out to this culture? Because he's very familiar with reaching out to the Hebrew culture, the, you know, the Jews. And he was starting to get more and more familiar with reaching out to the Greeks. But here is a new br- branch of people. These are Greek intellectuals. How am I going to reach out to them? And bear in mind, Paul's smart. He was a clever guy. But now he's able to do something that maybe theoretically he thought about in the past. But now it's finally come to head. How do I deal with these Athenians, these people who are famous or infamous for their, their, their intellectual capabilities? So next slide. So he says this in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said... People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Very religious. Now, again, if you were to walk into like a university like amphitheater or, or lecture hall, whatever, and tell everyone there that, they think, that, that, that you think they're really religious, they'd probably laugh at you and mock you. And I'm pretty sure the same thing would go with these guys. Religious. What do you mean by religious? And religious is a funny word because even as a Christian, I don't like being called religious. Because to me, religion's all about man's attempts to reach God. I, I like to think of myself as just humbled by my relationship with God. You know, that God reached me. And if God didn't come and get me and reach me and change my life, I probably wouldn't know God at all. And I, and I don't actually don't, I'm not the type of person that tends to like religious things. I don't like dogma. I don't like traditional things. I mean, I'm quite rigid. I, I mean, I can be a bit patterned in the way I do things. However, for me, religion doesn't really appeal. What appeals to me is that God, God's real, God loves me. God saved me. He cares. I like the relationship aspect. So if someone calls me religious, oh, you're a pastor. You're, you, well, you're religious. No, no, don't call me religious. I get mad. So when he uses the word religious, what's he meaning by this? Again, religious, in a good sense, talks about reverencing God, which I think it's important as a Christian or a disciple. We have reference to God. It speaks of piety, which means deeply religious or religious. It's a little bit question-making some of these these definitions. In a bad sense, it could also mean superstitious. And this is kind of more or less what he's probably hinting at. I like all your idols. I mean, why do they have idols? You know, if, you know, what are these, do they, I mean, these Greek intelligent people not realize where these idols come from, that they're crafted by, like we saw in Isaiah earlier, or they're made by the hands of craftsmen. Are these people really that stupid that they're actually worshiping these wooden and metal objects? So again, you're religious, but your religion is a bit silly. Are they really religious? Would they have considered themselves religious? I don't know. Probably not. Maybe he's just trying to get their attention. Again, being religious doesn't mean right with God either. So even if they were religious, it doesn't mean they're right with God. So Paul's saying this thing to get their attention. He's trying to open a door. He, and he goes on to say, For I walked around and I looked carefully at the objects of worship. So you have these objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. An unknown God. It's so funny. Paul is probably like tripping out. Again, culture shock. Walking around going, wow, this place has got an idol to every God I can think of. What is going on here? Except you probably noticed that there was no God to, no idol to the God Jehovah because God said, don't make an idol of me. So he's looking around, but he sees an, an inscription to an, on an altar. It says to an unknown God. Now, the reason why they did that is because they didn't want to offend anyone. They didn't want to offend any God. So again, it's a very 
you know, polite, pluralistic society. We don't want to offend anyone by saying something, you know, nasty about the religion. So we'll have this little place. And you can, and if we don't have your God, you can put your God there. It's the unknown God, which is what Paul basically did. Basically, this is the equivalence of having a spare Christmas present at hand. You never know when some family member or friends will come over. You need to have a spare Christmas present. Oh, yeah, I really, I thought, I really thought about you. Here's a Christmas present. You know what I'm saying? You know what it's like. It's like, oh, gee, thanks. Oh, how did you know I wanted Heroes for Christmas? Wow. Or some Lynx deodorant. That's exactly what I wanted for Christmas. You know what I'm saying? It's, so it's a, bit, a little bit cheeky, you know? Next slide. But that's okay, because Paul's going to use this opportunity to, to, to preach the gospel. And he does that. So in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. First thing we see right off the bat is he attacks this idea of physical monism. This philosophy they all appealed to. He was very much so a supernaturalist. And he's trying to say, listen, God doesn't live in a physical world like you and I do. So we can't even serve him. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Life and breath, very spiritual thing. The idea of life and motion and breath. For one man, he made all nations. Here, he's looking at the singularity of humanity. All come from Adam and Eve. That they should inhabit the earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. See, God can be considered a very hard person to find because we can't experience him in nature. But he says, no, 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 no. He's done everything he can do to reach out to you. He's given us excellent evidences, excellent proof to know to get to know God. In fact, the best proof we're going to see in a moment here is his son. He actually gave his son. He did the most amazing miracle. He made the spiritual son become a physical human like you and I, so he might die on the cross. God does that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Um, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Here is two quotes from contemporary philosophers of the time. The first one, for in him we live, move, and have our being. This is from the creation philosopher Epimendes. And this is, again, evidences that God, that natural life is actually, this natural life that we experience and, and, and take for granted comes from a spiritual source. That spiritual source is God himself. And that's what these, that's what these quotes Suggests for in him we live and we breathe. Where does this life come from? It comes from a spiritual source, God. And also, as some of your own prophets said, we are his offspring. So God, a spiritual being, has birthed us physically. It's a mysterious thing, we know, but it's very much so an attack on their worldview there in Greece. Next slide. So, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think. That the divine being is like gold or silver. So basically, he just nails it. This idea of natural pantheism, this whole idea of like monism and God is in nature, God's in things. God is not an idol, he's not in idols, he's not in gold, he's not in silver, he's not in stone. An image made by human design and skill, he's none of these things. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. 
This is kind of a scary verse, guys, so bear in mind what's going on here. This is very scary. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So it's all about that resurrection. That resurrection is strong proof of a supernatural God and supernatural spiritual beings and souls called human beings. So when we live, we die, we don't just go away. We, we have identity in these souls that carry on. So the idea of resurrection is a real concern because if we're resurrected and we don't know Jesus, then what are we resurrected unto? Well, here he suggests it's judgment. So again, the day of innocence or ignorance is over for the world in general. The evidence of God is found in Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, it's not a mystery anymore. We've seen it. God's given us proof, as he says here, evidence. Everyone who understands that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God must repent. They must change the way they think, the way they view life, the way they do things, and, and turn to God's way. That's what this says here. All people everywhere to repent. This is not my word. This is the word of God in Acts. And also, he says, a day of judge, divine justice, just judgment or justice will come. So the question here is, do you understand? Do I understand? Have you repented? Have I repented? Because this is the bottom line. This is what Paul is saying to the Greeks. And the thing is, the Greeks responded in one of three ways. And I think we have to decide which way we are going to respond. And I think we are going to find ourselves, as well as other people in our lives, they're going to find themselves in one of three ways categories. And this is the last slide of the day, guys. And that's why I call this slide, the final slide, who do you identify with in this story? In verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection, the dead, some of them sneered, skeptic A, sneering, but others said, skeptic B, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that Paul at the council, some of the people who became followers of Paul and believed, skeptic C. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Agrippas, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. So interesting, you need, if you understand what's being said here, you need to respond to it. And that response, that being moved, is repentance. So we have three groups, skeptic A. And bear in mind, I, I, I think it's okay to be a Christian disciple and be a skeptic. I am. Skeptic A, though, is a hard skeptic. Boom. Can't be moved. Like a stone wall. And we know of people in our lives like that. And I hope that you guys aren't this way. Skeptic A, the hard skeptic. Those are those who sneered. Pah! God! Blah! Resurrection! Blah! Jesus! Nonsense. They just they don't want to talk about it. They want to reason. They don't want to think about it. They just put a wall up. These are the ones who are waiting for the Day of Judgment. It's a sad thing to say, but it's what the scriptures are suggesting. It's hard. We need to pray for these people that they would change and go <laughs> that direction, right? Skeptic B, a lot better position to be in. They're open-minded. They're soft. I'll, I'll look at the evidence. I'll think about things. I'm, it's a person that's hard to find, but if you can find a genuine skeptic B, it's a, it's a good person to find. Someone who's really, and the thing is, even my philosophy, I've, I've had a, a forum uh, about the, 
the problem of pain and evil. And there was a couple guys in there who were asking really good questions. I was like, this is awesome. You had a couple clowns who just dropped their stupid stupidity and left. But you had a couple people who hung about and were asking really good questions. And I had a really nice conversation going with them. It was awesome. And these are the people we want in our lives, people who are open-minded, called the soft skeptics. They want to hear more about making a decision or before making a decision. That's kind of like we saw here in verse 32. They want to hear you again on the subject. So they want to hear more. They're not ready to make a decision yet. They want to hear more. And that's cool, but it's a dangerous place to be. You don't want to be here too long. You have to make a choice because according to what scripture says, all must repent. And that's where you get to skeptic C. Skeptic C is not naive. Okay? You don't have to be naive to be a disciple of Christ. You don't have to just accept everything as hokey-cokey. You can have a lot of really good questions. You can actually even have frustration and anger about God and what he's doing in this world. But you have to submit to him as authority. And a part of that is repentance. So skeptic C is a repentant disciple. And that's me, guys. No, not all questions are answered. We're not naive. We're not expected to be naive. Not all questions are answered. But I'm moved by the evidence. I've seen what Jesus has done. I'm moved. And by moved, I don't mean just like, ooh, I feel a bit tingly inside. By moved, I mean moving to repentance. Yeah.